Sometimes in life, there is an event that changes everything. An absolute game changer of an event for an individual, a family, a group of people, a society, the world. The coronavirus certainly looks like it's going to be one of them. Those will see longer term what the impact will be. And we can think of others in recent years, Brexit, 9-11, or personally, um, weddings, uh, births of children, um, passing on of loved ones. Now, we might not be able to um, pin down one key moment in time, but I think um, a lighter example, I think the technological revolution that we've been through, through the last 30 and even just 10 years, would fit that category well. It's revolutionised not just the way we communicate, the way we operate as human beings. I think if you uh, told the person on the street 30 years ago that in 2020, not only would we all own our own personal computers, but we'd keep them in our pockets, on our wrists, even in our glasses if we wanted to, and that they'd control our music speakers, our TVs, our fridges, our social interactions, our love lives, I think they would have thought you were crazy. Um, sometimes in life, there's a moment, an event, an occurrence that changes everything. Something that's an absolute game changer. And I think we have a moment a bit like this in our passage this morning. Uh, let just, let's just pray again before we go any further. Father, we thank you for what you have to say to us in Luke 22 this morning. We pray that you will speak to us and warm our hearts with the gospel. Amen. Before we delve into the passage, uh, let's take a moment to set the scene. The noise. It was the noise that did it. I'd never heard a noise like it before. I never will again. It was the noise of wailing. And that was when we knew. That was when we knew God had done it. That's when we knew we were safe. He had judged Egypt. He had passed over us. He was going to set us free. That bizarre meal that Moses had told us to prepare in a hurry and eat the night before, it had worked. The angel of the Lord had seen the blood of the lambs that we had sacrificed on our doorposts, and he had passed over our houses. God was going to set us free. And the rest of that night, it was just a blur. Before we knew whether we were coming or going, the word had come from Moses and Aaron that Pharaoh had finally said we could go free and that this time he meant it. We grabbed our bread dough and we left. We were out of there. 430 years and we left. It was the greatest day in our history. And so the story would have gone. Every Passover, each family sitting around the table, the parents teaching the children the events of the Exodus, just as their parents had taught them. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, as we begin this series uh, for the next few weeks up to Easter, looking at the end of Luke's Gospel. Um, we find ourselves at Passover time. Verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. The Passover. That time each year when the Jewish people gathered together to celebrate the greatest day in Israel's history, the day when God had judged Egypt and saved his people by providing a lamb to be punished for their sin instead of their oldest sons, the Passover, the greatest day in Israel's history. 
And we begin this Passover in verses 2 to 6 on a bad note. Uh, We begin with a triumph for the chief priests, don't we? Um, For a long time, they've been looking to get rid of Jesus. Uh, You can flip back to chapter 20 of Luke's Gospel, verses 19 and 20. Or chapter 19, verses 47 to 48. And now, suddenly, the tides turn in their favor. They have a traitor. One of Jesus' own crowd willing to hand him over. They'll be able to arrest him in secret, without any opposition from his followers or the crowds. Uh, Meanwhile, verses 7 to 13, well, they're taken up with the preparations by Jesus and his disciples to celebrate the Passover. What's striking here, I think, is is Jesus' calm resolve. I don't know whether you've noticed before. He knows exactly what's going to happen, as we'll see later. But he isn't phased. His calm control is astonishing as he directs his disciples in verses 10 to 12 as to what they will find and what they should do to prepare. And it's with verse 14 that we get into the heart of the passage, the meal that will take up the rest of this section of Luke. And it's a meal that will change everything. Luke devotes 25 verses to it. It's a meal that will change everything. The first thing it does, it's a meal that reveals a new sacrifice and a new covenant. Verses 14 to 23. It reveals a new sacrifice and a new covenant. Verse 14, follow with me. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I wonder, did you notice as we read it just now, quite how many times in the first half of our passage, Luke refers to the Passover and the preparations for it. We get it in verse 1. Verse 7, 8, 9, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Nine mentions of the Passover or preparations for the Passover. Luke is pretty keen to see, for us to see, that these events are occurring at Passover time. In fact, verse 14, the meal occurred at the very hour at which, across Jerusalem, the Passover meal was being eaten. When the hour came, they sat down to eat. And it's clear from Jesus' words that this meal at this moment was very significant for him. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, he says. Why such highlighting by Jesus and then by Luke? Well, because what was about to happen on the cross was going to be an absolute game changer. It was going to change everything. And it was imperative that Jesus' friends had at least some understanding of what was about to happen before the events of the next few days took place. And it is imperative that we too understand the significance of what was about to happen before we read the next few chapters over the coming weeks. And so the meal began as usual, with the bread and cup being taken and given thanks for by the meal's host, verses 15 to 18. Um, apparently by Jesus' day, the Passover meal actually featured four different cups being drunk at different points in the meal. So it might seem a bit confusing that we get a mention of a cup in verse 17 and another mention of a cup in verse 20. Is it the same? Is it a different cup? We're not quite sure. Um, But notice Jesus' ominous words as he gives thanks. Um, Verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it again 
until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And verse 18, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Why is this Passover meal so significant for Jesus? Well, it will be Jesus' last Passover meal on earth. But I think he's saying more than that here. I think there's a sense in which he's saying this is to be everyone's last Passover meal on earth. Because in the middle of a meal that was all about looking back, Jesus starts talking about the future. In the middle of a meal that was all about looking back to the past, Jesus starts talking about the future. Verse 19. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In the middle of a meal that was all about looking back, Jesus started talking about the future. And not just a generic, you know, here's to, here's to many more happy years at 25th anniversary celebrations. More specific, more literal. An event that's so close to taking place, he speaks of it in present tense. You see, this bread, says Jesus, this bread you're about to eat, this bread that symbolizes the unleavened bread you ate as God rescued you out of Egypt. Well, now it points to something different. Now it points to something different. It points to my body. My body, which is about to be given for you. And this wine represents my blood, which is about to be poured out for you. When you eat the bread and drink the wine now, you're not to think back to the Exodus. You're to think of me and what I'm about to do for you. And just imagine the shock there must have been in that upper room amongst Jesus' disciples as he breaks with the tradition of uh, hundreds of years, if not thousands. What's he saying? What's he talking about? No more Passover. Um, given that 21 of the 25 verses devoted to the Passover are Jesus speaking, it's striking how little the disciples say, pretty much nothing. You can imagine their minds racing, trying to catch up with what he's talking about. Firstly, he's actually going to die. He's been telling them since chapter 9, perhaps now the penny is finally starting to drop. But more than that, what he says his death is going to mean. No more Passover meal, no more lambs, no more bitter herbs, no more priests, no more altars, no more hoping the blood of a lamb could somehow pay the price for your sin. No more looking back to Moses' time to see God's greatest work in history. Because there was a new sacrifice. Jesus was replacing the unleavened bread with his body. He was going to die. His death would be a sacrifice. It would be a Passover sacrifice. It would be the Passover sacrifice. It's hard to imagine how huge a statement that would have been for Jesus' first hearers. What a game changer it would have been. Like the person we thought about earlier on the street in 1990, being told what the future of technology would hold. This sacrifice was going to change everything. And it was going to bring in a whole new covenant. The new sacrifice was going to bring in 
a whole new covenant. Verse 20, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, covenants are a big Bible concept. It would be worth looking into them if it's not familiar. And the theologian Thomas Schreiner helpfully defines what a covenant is by the four things it had. Um, so it was a relationship. It was chosen, not forced. It was between two parties. They could be individuals or groups. And it was a relationship that involved binding promises. It was a serious commitment. Maybe like marriage today might give us a little bit of a sense of what that would have looked like. So Jesus' new sacrifice was going to bring about the new covenant the new relationship, the relationship that God had promised his people through the words of the prophet Jeremiah many years earlier. You might want to turn, I'm going to read about five verses from Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. I think it should be on page 794. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This sacrifice was going to bring in the promised new covenant, a whole new way of God relating to his people. And did you catch how great this covenant is? God's law will be internal, written on our minds and our hearts. He will be our God and we will be his people. He will have a personal relationship with every one of us. We will all know God. And there won't just be the hope of forgiveness. Animal blood, which can't take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us the dim and distant prospect of a Messiah to one day come. There will be actual, genuine, total forgiveness of our sins. And who is this for? The ancient fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the great prophets and kings, Samuel, David, Moses, Isaiah, the learned Pharisees of Jesus' present day. Verse 19. This is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is for you, Jesus says to his disciples, this sacrifice. 28 times. In these 38 verses, we get the personal pronoun, you, your, yourselves, uh, referring to Jesus' followers. And 29 times we get I, me, or my, referring to Jesus. This is my body, my blood, and I give it for you, he says to them. And I wonder how we need to hear that this morning. 
that Jesus gave his body and his blood on that cross for us. What does it mean for us as we um, read through the news and read article after article about coronavirus, as we scroll through social media and see post after post, as we count to 20 as we wash our hands and try to resist the temptation to buy a little bit more in the grocery shop than we would normally do? A few things I think it means. I think, number one, his blood is powerful. It's paid for every sin, once and for all. It has brought in the new covenant. In Hebrews 9, from verse 11, the writer says, But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus' blood is powerful. It has paid for our every sin. And secondly, It's personal. Often we talk about the cross in quite transactional terms. We talk about redemption, justification, propitiation. And those images are all right and good, and it's good for us to understand them. But I wonder whether we sometimes can almost get lost in the mechanics and forget that this is such a personal thing that Jesus has done for us. We don't get mechanics, explanation here, Jesus explaining, substitutionary atonement, how exactly he's going to swap places with the Passover lamb. Elsewhere in the Bible we get that. But here, take this and divide it among you. This is my body given for you. No explanation, just invitation here. His blood is personal. But what use is this? Our sinful hearts might throw at their hands and say, sin is not the issue. On the 15th of March, 2020, at least not if you read the front page of the newspapers this morning, it's sickness that is our problem. A couple of responses to that. Number one, we need to get our perspective right. Sickness is serious. It matters. It's to be avoided where possible. It's terrible. And it's cruel in those it takes and how it takes them. It will have no place in the new creation. But sin still matters more. Sin still matters more. Even more than the coronavirus, whatever the next few weeks and months may hold. Because sickness can take our bodies too soon in awful ways. But it cannot take our souls Romans 8, we studied a couple of months ago, 
Let me read a few verses. 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither, uh, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, we should and we must take the coronavirus seriously and we'll pray in earnest for God to take it away and we'll mourn if a time comes when we lose loved ones. But we must remember that sickness can only take our bodies. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We must get our perspectives right. And if you're not yet trusting Jesus, let me gently suggest that maybe the coronavirus is a gentle nudge from God to us all to remember that we're mortal, that we will all one day die. What are you going to say when you stand before the throne of God if Jesus has offered you his body and you said no? Don't be like Judas, who was sat right there with Jesus at this meal, but wanted no part of him. And next, I think Jesus' body nourishes us so we can come to him. Now, of course, we want to avoid the Catholic misunderstanding that Jesus is somehow sort of sacrificed again each time we take the Lord's Supper, that his death on the cross wasn't enough. It needs to, we need continued sacrifices. We know from Hebrews, his death paid the full price of our sin. But I think Jesus uses the image of bread here, of all the metaphors he could have chosen, because there's a sense of nourishment. The cross is not just a transaction. As we come to Jesus' body in the Lord's Supper, as we come to him in his word, as we come to him as a church in prayer, he nourishes us. He feeds us. He builds us up by his grace. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. So come to him. Come and be nourished by him. For me, at least, um, two natural responses to problems like this. Um, number one, paralysis. Do nothing, think nothing, ignore, mentally check out. Number two, panic, stress, worry, fear, sweat. Maybe uh, many of us will have gone towards one or the other or, or both. Don't do those things, says Jesus. This is my body given for you. Take it. It will nourish you. As you refresh the BBC News homepage, as you go to shop after shop, trying to find a bottle of Calpol, as you work out what it's going to look like to try and work from home, or you hear of another family self-isolating, this is my body given for you. Take it. It will nourish you. And of course, um, coronavirus isn't the only thing in our lives at the moment. But where else do we need to hear Jesus' offer, his powerful, personal, nourishing offer? Perhaps you're carrying around a sin from the past. You've repented. You know you're forgiven. But it just trails behind you wherever you go. And you can't seem to get rid of it. 
a relationship that you ruined, an action you regret, words you know you can never take back. This is my body, given for you. Take it. It will nourish you, says Jesus. Or perhaps life hasn't worked out how you thought or hoped it would. It's filled with grief, with loss, with sadness, or hopes that remain unfulfilled. The spouse who hasn't arrived, the children who haven't been conceived, the calling or career that hasn't taken off. This is my body, given for you. Take it. It will nourish you. And Jesus' instruction isn't just to come and take it once. It's to keep coming. Keep taking it. This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So don't go anywhere else. Like the toddler who's just learnt to walk, who follows their parent from room to room, never wanting to be away from their side. Don't go anywhere else. Keep coming to Jesus. Keep taking what he offers. So we, um, we can be tempted, can't we, to sort of want to move on from Jesus uh, in our haste to get the most up-to-date medical advice, to follow the best possible practice. We sort of can forget Jesus. Yes, we've prayed, but there's no time for that now. This is, this is too important. We need to get practical. Now, of course, we should pay attention and follow the best medical advice we can. But also, much more, let's keep coming to Jesus. Keep taking from Jesus. This is my body. He says, take it. And we can be tempted to move on, get distracted, get bored in other areas of our lives. We think of the relatively new convert. They've, um, they've grasped the basics. They're reading, listening, studying. Uh, which band of Christianity am I going to identify myself with? Which leaders am I going to follow and subscribe to? Which tribe am I going to belong to? But this is my body given for you, says Jesus. It's about the cross. Don't wander away from there. All the more established Christian. Life's busy, but it's together. There's lots going on. Careers, houses, projects, kids, parents. And they're fighting fires all over the place. And Jesus sort of gets a bit squeezed out, squeezed into a corner. This is my body given for you, says Jesus. Don't wander away from the cross. This is a meal that changes everything. It reveals a whole new sacrifice and covenant. But it also reveals a whole new way of living. It reveals a whole new way of living. Isn't it bitterly ironic that um, straight after this extraordinary declaration of what Jesus is going to do for them, what do we find the disciples doing in verse 24? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Knowing that Jesus is about to go, having just heard his revolutionary final words to them, his incredible offer of his own body for them. And they're arguing about legacy, about successes, about organization. They failed to grasp that this new sacrifice, this new covenant, isn't just a flash in the pan, a clap of thunder gone almost as soon as you heard it. It's going to change everything. It's going to change everything. And in the rest of our passage this morning, um, Jesus gently but firmly recasts his disciples' thinking, uh, recasts the way they view things, um, in light of the new sacrifice and covenant he's bringing. So we get three little lessons in verses 25 to 30, verses 31 to 34, and verses 35 to 38. Um, the first one, he recasts how they're to view each other. In verses 25 to 30, he recasts how they're to view each other. 
the, king of the, the kings of the Gentiles, verse 25, lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. You see how the gentle rulers behave, he asks? Do the opposite. Be totally countercultural in the way you relate to each other as a group. Don't put yourselves first. Don't try to get to the top of the pile. Don't build up a reputation for yourself. Put yourself last. Serve each other. Sounds so simple. Much harder to do in practice. But um, the crestfallen expressions on the disciples' faces as Jesus told them off surely didn't last long. It's in verse 29 he says, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And suddenly, as they hear these words, building their earthly towers, their earthly reputations, their earthly glory, doesn't seem so important, does it? It would be like plowing so much in trying to build your perfect little Lego house that you failed to do up the five-bedroom country manor that's recently been left to you. Jesus has given them a kingdom. You've got a kingdom already. I've given one to you from my Father. You don't need to build up little kingdoms for yourselves. You're free to serve, like me. So he recasts how they're to view each other, they're to be servants. And then he recasts how they're to view themselves in verses 31 to 34. He recasts how they're to view themselves. And he speaks in strong terms in verse 31. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. In language similar to that used about Job, these disciples are going to be tested to their limits. God is going to allow Satan to tempt and try them. Simon Peter, however, and thinks little of Jesus' words of warning, it would seem. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death, verse 37. I don't think you get, Jesus, how sold out I am for you, how committed I am to the cause, he says. I don't think Jesus bats an eyelid, verse 34. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Simon will utterly disown Jesus, deny all knowledge of him. Simon Peter is grossly overestimating his godliness, his ability to withstand temptation. He's weaker, he's less strong, he has less resolve than he'd like to think. And if we're a little bit tempted to judge him, he's no worse than any of the rest of the disciples, no worse than any of us. It's a temptation that lies in all of us, certainly in me. I'm less godly, less strong, have much less resolve than I might like to think. But there is hope. Because Jesus knows that Peter will fall away. But he also knows that Peter will come back. When you have turned back, verse 32. And his confidence for that statement, it's his own prayers. Jesus' own prayers. But I have prayed for you, Simon, verse 32, that your faith may not fail. Jesus knows that Simon will come back because he has prayed for him himself. And I think we can claim that too. 
Um, in Romans 8, again, um, in verse 34, we saw that Christ intercedes for us. The Spirit prays on our, in our weakness. And whilst we must not overestimate our godliness, our strength, our resolve, we also must not underestimate God's power to save. Jesus recasts how they are to view each other, they're to serve, and how they're to view themselves, they're to be humble. And finally, he recasts how they're to view the world. Verses 35 to 38. How they're to view the world. Um, he brings up when he sent them out to preach in his name, which Luke records back in chapter 10. And he reminds them that they could rely on God's provision then in the form of support from people outside the community of believers as they entered towns and stayed in the homes of people who welcomed the gospel message they brought. But now, verse 36, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. They should not expect to welcome any longer. Not that no one will believe the gospel message. We know from Acts uh, the amount of people that came to faith during that early period of the church's life. But still, they're not to expect to welcome. They're not to presume upon it. Instead, they are to be prepared. Prepared for hostility. Prepared for rejection. Not that this is a literal call to take up arms. That's enough, says Jesus in verse 38. Like the adult barking at the um, infuriating child when they start counting their swords. No. Rather, they must be prepared for spiritual battle. For spiritual conflict. To be counted as transgressors. Just as their Lord will be. And that surely will be their reassurance. They will not face any wickedness he has not already faced. They will be oppressed, just as he was oppressed. They'll be opposed, just as he was opposed. They'll be attacked, just as he was attacked. They'll be rejected, just as he was rejected. Just as the scriptures said he would be. So Jesus recasts how they're to view each other, they're to serve. Themselves, they're to be humble. And the world, they're to, they're to be prepared for battle. You see, his death on the cross... The new sacrifice that will bring in the new covenant will change everything. And it will bring a whole new way of living. Now, there will be different ways uh, that different people need to hear this this morning. Uh, some of us, I think, will need to hear the challenge to um, change how we relate and view to, how we view and relate to other Christians. If Jesus has already given me an eternal kingdom, why am I working so hard? to make other people think well of me, to build up my own little castle. I'm free to serve. I think of the person who loves to feel needed. Um, they love to care for and look after people and to offer help. To the point they're not quite sure how to relate to someone if their service isn't needed. Or they resent it when someone else gets in there first to offer help. And so they make the conscious decision. They're not just going to look for the needy people, but they're going to find a way to build a relationship with someone that isn't based on them serving. They're going to rejoice when someone else serves them. They've realized that Jesus has already given us a kingdom. We don't need to build our own little towers. We're free to serve. Or for others, it'll be the challenge of how we view ourselves. Um, I think of the person watching that show on Netflix that they know 
doesn't really do them a lot of good. They probably wouldn't want to mention it to their church friends that they watch it. But I can withstand it, they say. It doesn't affect me. But they know it's probably not doing them any good. It doesn't take their mind anywhere it ought to be taken. So they turn it off. They give up mid-series. They watch something a bit less exciting, a bit less funny. They find something different. They know that Jesus prays for us, that he intercedes for us, that he transforms us. But they also know that they're not as godly or as strong as they might like to think they are. And that sometimes that just means turning off the TV or doing some, uh, finding something else to watch. And for others, it'll be a challenge to change how we view the world. Are we prepared? Are we prepared for battle? Are we prepared to be hated because of Jesus? Not, not just prepared as in expecting it, but have we got ourselves ready for it? I think of the teenage Christian who um, tries to avoid conversations with her friends about Christianity. Not because she doesn't want them to be saved, but because she's scared of the questions they'll ask, scared that she won't be able to answer them. So one day, she decides to swat up, to read the Bible a bit more at home, on her own, to maybe read some apologetics books written for teenagers, to talk to her parents or her youth leaders, and to actually get some answers. She knows that she may still be opposed. She won't have the answers to everything. But she knows that God will strengthen her for the battle, that she'll face no opposition Jesus hasn't already faced, and that God will give her everything she needs to stand firm. And in light of the coronavirus, I think the temptation is to um, retract into ourselves. How can we serve? How can we serve each other? How can we serve the wider community rather than becoming every man for himself? Jesus has given us a kingdom. And let's not overestimate ourselves. Let's know our weakness, our frailty, our vulnerability, and accept that however authoritarian the opinions that we've heard and might be following R, no one really knows how to fight this illness. But Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us. And let's be prepared. Because this won't just be a physical battle. It'll be a spiritual one. So let's remember, Jesus has gone out ahead of us in the battle. And let's prepare. And so we see an event, a moment, an occurrence that changes everything. Jesus' death on the cross, a new sacrifice, bringing in a new covenant and a whole new way of living. So take it, says Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that for many of us are so familiar and yet are so profound. Thank you for Jesus' offer to us of his body and his blood as a sacrifice. We pray particularly in light of the fears and the anxieties in wider society and in ourselves, in light of the coronavirus, we pray that you will help us to remember that you've already dealt with our biggest problem, our sin, and help us to keep coming to you, nourishing ourselves on your word. Amen.